Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by Tibor Rutar. Tibor is a professor of sociology at the University of Maribor, Slovenia. He is the author of Rational Choice and Democratic Government. But his latest book, which we are talking about today, is Capitalism for Realists, Virtues and Vices of the Modern Economy. Tibor, thank you for joining me. Hi, Chris. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I know you wanted to say something about your... <laughs> background and how you came to write this book. So I guess that's my first question. How did you come to write this book? What was your journey? Did this start in graduate school? Has this been turning around in your head for a long time? How did you come to publish this? Sure, let's get into it. So um, I was actually a very committed Marxist, both politically and intellectually, 10 years ago as I was finishing up my undergraduate studies. This was in the aftermath of the Great Financial Recession and the Occupy movement, and I just got radicalized. There was a local student strike or a student sit-in at the Faculty of Arts, and one thing led to, led to another. So I, I read the first volume of Marxist Capital and a few works by contemporary Marxist economists like Andrew Kleiman. Uh, his book, The Failure of Capitalist Production, made a great uh, impression on me back in 2012. And so I basically um, joined the local Marxist reading group, um, th that ballooned uh, after a while. We even got uh, the opportunity to invite many Marxists across the world, from the United States, from Britain, from France, to come to Slovenia, to give some talks, to join us at our annual Mayday conference. I joined a budding um, socialist political party that is right now, I exited it uh, later on, but right now it's actually a part of the ruling coalitionary government. Uh, and so I decided to do my PhD and master's on um, on Marxism, on Marxist economics, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, Marxist historical sociology, trying to defend it uh, against criticisms uh, coming out of the more postmodern and uh, Weberian sociological perspectives. And uh, I, I decided to, to be a Marxist. I, I wrote many articles from a Marxist perspective. And then around 2017, so five, six years ago, I started moving slowly away from Marxism because I got uh, interested in philosophy of science. And to my mind, at least, um, Marxists didn't say that much uh, useful stuff on that. So I read up on uh, classics like Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn and uh, Paul Feyerabend, and I just slowly moved away from Marxism. But the real uh, trigger for me, the real point of deconversion, I guess, came in the summer of 2018 when I read two books by non-Marxist political economists. One was the, uh, the book by uh, Jason Brennan, your former uh, guest uh, against democracy. And the other book was by Dorona Samoglu and James Robinson, Why Nations Fail. And I was struck by two things uh, as I was reading those books. First of all, how convinced I was by most of their arguments. And then secondly, reflecting on that fact, I realized that basically this was not surprising because my own brand of Marxism was always kind of peculiar. I was more uh, usually more in line with the analytical Marxists like John Romer and Eric Colin Wright, uh, people like that. 
And I discovered that actually all this time as a Marxist, I was doing a rational choice analysis just from a more um, constrained class struggle perspective. I was focused on the economic side of life and uh, trying to deduce all the interesting social phenomena from, from the, how the exploiters behaved uh, in their relationship to the exploited. And then reading uh, Why Nations Fail and Against Democracy, I realized, well, why not just use rational choice theory as I have been doing all this time, but not constrain myself just by focusing on class struggle. And I guess uh, Asamoglu and Brennan showed me the way. So this is how I came to uh, write this book. Uh, a few years later, I was now reading up on public choice theory, on institutional economics. I read a few textbooks on neoclassical economics as I was uh, kind of free from my Marxist constraints. And I realized that I have kind of deep knowledge of both of these sides of the debate. So I knew a lot about uh, Marxism uh, or the analytical flavor of Marxism. And then I knew a lot about um, public choice and more libertarian, I guess, perspectives, more mainstream perspectives. And I, I realized that there's so much common ground in actuality when you strip away all the political rhetoric between, say, analytical Marxism and public choice that I decided to, to write a book trying to synthesize those perspectives and also maybe to try to write a book that is not burdened by trying to um, create this grand defense or grand critique, theoretical critique of capitalism. And I, I tried to write a book that would um, let the, the facts, descriptive facts and uh, inferential statistics to, to speak for itself as much as it can. You mentioned a phrase in there, analytical Marxism, which comes up a lot in the book. Can you say something about what analytical Marxism is and how it's distinct from classical Marxism or other brands of Marxism? Sure. So analytical Marxism was in its heyday in the late 70s and through the 80s and maybe early 90s. And then in the past two decades, uh, it went uh, into a bit of a decline. Uh, th this was basically a research program within the broad Marxist tradition, which set itself two tasks um, to, to achieve. First of all, um, analytical Marxists tried to um, renew or rework the classical Marxist thesis and conclusions and arguments with a modern social scientific outlook in mind. So using the tools of analytical philosophy, like being clear with your definitions, making precise distinctions, uh, trying to be as transparent as possible when you're arguing and laying out your causal chains or conceptual chains. Uh, and also by applying um, game theory and rational choice theory and um, such assumptions like uh, methodological individualism and try to rework Marxism in that way. And then secondly, to test all of those claims when they're reworked, uh, which of those can stand up to empirical investigation using uh, mathematics and statistics and even qualitative historical uh, data. And what they found, these analytical Marxists, people like um, Herbert Gintis and, like I mentioned, Eric Colin Wright, uh, John Romer, uh, John Elster, what they found out was that, well, some of those claims of cl classical Marxism can be reframed in a modern scientific uh, way, uh, but some of them cannot be. And of those that can be reframed, some of, some of them don't really stand up to empirical scrutiny. And of those that do stand up to empirical scrutiny, most of them are not really distinctively Marxist. So you can make various claims that Marxists would like, like that um, capitalism has a tendency to drive up inequalities, that capitalism has a tendency to exploit workers to a certain extent, that uh, political elites under capitalism government are uh, usually captured by special interests. All of those um, uh, Marxism's claims can be can be made in a modern scientific framework, but those are not really distinctively Marxist. I mean, libertarians make those claims, 
um, at least some of them, public choice theorists, institutional econo economists uh, make those claims. So analytical Marxism could be summed up by what, um, I mean, uh, I think John Elster once said, and that is that most of the things that are analytical in Marxism are not really uh, are not really uh, distinctively Marxist, and most most of Mar distinctively Marxist claims don't really stand up to analytical and empirical scrutiny in in the modern context. Okay, thank you. So this is how you came to write the book, just broadly, because we'll get into the specifics more as we go. What's the thesis of the book? Yeah, the broad thesis of the book is that capitalism has, like the subtitle says, many virtues and also many vices, and that trying to divide ourselves into the, the more left-leaning Marxist camp and the more, let's say, right-leaning libertarian camp, I don't think is all that um, uh, opposite when we try to evaluate mar um, capitalism uh, in a realistic fashion. Uh, we should simply admit from the start that capitalism has its downsides and its upsides, and then we should analyze that theoretically in the most neutral way possible. So no special pleading, no, no assumptions that capitalists are inherently evil or selfish while workers are not, or voters and um, uh, ostensibly government planners and bureaucrats would like to pursue the public interest. None of that things. Just uh, use the basic tools of rational choice analysis and then let the empirical uh, data speak for themselves uh, in which uh, aspects ca capitalism is a superior or at least a semi-optimal system and in which aspects it could be improve, improved upon by certain economic and political reforms, like maybe making it more social democratic, maybe establishing a universal basic income, Income, maybe having stronger unions if there there is actually some a degree of exploitation. I would just um, I wouldn't start with um, certain presumptions about labor unions about uh, let's say the, the welfare state. I, I would just try to see where the evidence leads us, and uh, theoretically, I would use as bare bones um, a theory as possible. Okay, so the book is called Capitalism for Realists. There's two big terms there. Just take them one at a time. How are you defining capitalism in this book? And what do you mean by realists? And how is that like as opposed to idealists or, or do you have something else in mind there? Sure. Capitalism is a system at the most basic level is a system that involves security of property rights, private ownership of the means of production, and both uh, widespread market competition and market dependence. With that, I simply mean that a, a society is capitalist if in it people are not afraid that their property is going to get expropriated away overnight, if uh, the majority of the productive assets like offices and um, buildings and uh, factories, firms in general, cor corporations are in private hands, not owned by a collective body like the government. And with market dependence, I mean that the majority of economic actors can only renew their own uh, social position, can maintain themselves in their structural position if they uh, consistently get involved in market exchange. Capitalists stop being capitalists if they stop going to the market. And the same goes for, wor for workers. They have to keep on uh, reselling their labor power. They have to um, uh, go to the job and, because otherwise they won't get any wages in return. And so they won't be uh, workers. They won't be able to maintain their social, social position. And then lastly, with market, um, market competition, I simply mean that there have to be loads of buyers and sellers of goods, services, labor power, not too many monopolies. There has to be relative ease of entrance into the market for potential new entrants. So th that would be uh, capitalism. And then we could talk maybe later about whether this definition is the, the right one or, or maybe other definitions are superior. That, that's usually a problematic discussion because definitions are tautologies. They can be 
correct or wrong. They just are. And maybe, maybe they're more or less useful, but you can't empirically test the definition. I have a way to solve that problem and, and to try to assert that my definition is the, the one that is most useful, but maybe we get to that later on. And then uh, about realists, well, with that, I mean, per perhaps, I mean, two things which I've slightly mentioned before. So the first thing is that let's, Theoretically speaking, if we are if we are realists, let, theoretically speaking, let's be as bare bones as possible. No, none of these grand theoretical defenses or critiques of capitalism in Marxism, for example. There's all this talk about dialectics, about um, reification, about um, false consciousness, all these complex theoretical apparatuses. Uh, and I think most of that, that is fluff. Uh, it's either incoherent or it's fluff. You, you, do, you don't need that. And libertarians, for their part, sometimes also get bogged down in these grand philosophical defenses of, uh, of uh, individual liberties and so on, um, uh, trying to be deontologists where you cannot uh, violate property rights of anybody, even if your own life depends on that. Um, and I, I would just do away with that if we are being realists and just use rational choice theory. Let's just suppose people are uh, people are, people are rational, they're strategizing, they're responsive to incentives, and they want to do the best they can for themselves and their family. And then let's try to see where that assumption leads us uh, within a given system, like capitalism or, or the basic structures of which I've just laid out. Let's see if um, uh, in such a system, over the long term, people will be cronies, uh, whether they'll be corrupt, uh, whether the general social welfare will be protected, to what extent, and so on. And then the second thing, and this is more empirically speaking now, is let's just um, try to look at the best studies, quantitative, qualitative, and other studies that we have on various topics. Let's let's see um, what are the correlates of um, social inequality, I mean, uh, income and wealth inequality. Let's uh, try to examine whether realistic markets as they exist in reality, not on paper, in uh, perfectly competitive Econ 101 models, uh, whether they engender exploitation or not, how would you measure that? Is that reliable or not? Stuff like that. Okay. I'm perfectly happy with the definition you gave. That mm -hmm. sounds reasonable to me and how I think about the term capitalism. <clears throat> but I'm curious, coming from a Marxist background, is your sense that that is the way Marxists think about capitalism? Because there's a talking past each other I've seen mm -hmm. in a lot of debates between more libertarian and more Marxist people, where people with Marxist leanings tend to think of the distinctive feature of capitalism as workers being dependent on bosses or something something like that, that like the, the market per se or free markets is not really the distinctive feature of capitalism. And whereas I think defenders of capitalism often do think of secure property rights and free markets as being kind of the sine qua non and Marxists thinking more of this kind of unequal economic arrangement where you have capitalist bosses with most of the property and large numbers of wage earning workers. So that if you had a free market with private property that was almost entirely made up of small independent contractors, that maybe wouldn't count as capitalism on the Marxist side, but would on the libertarian side. Does mm -hmm. that ring true to you at all? Am I, am I on to anything there? Sure. 
Definitely, you definitely are. So yeah, there's a part of this debate that definitely um, uh, goes down in the way that you described it now. So Marxists definitely emphasize the enclosure movement in England, in the transition to capitalism, how the landholding peasantry was at one point expropriated by violent means. And so these people became wage um, landless laborers who could then be exploited by capitalists. I, I guess that this is covered in my definition with the clause referring to the private ownership of the means of production. But you're right that th this could be intention uh, when it comes to some Marxists. I guess that, um, and this is a funny uh, thing about my past as well now, uh, I guess uh, the Marxists that mostly influenced me, uh, like Alan Mikesons Wood, like Robert Brenner, the historian Robert Brenner, um, all of them were very adamant from the start. E even Andrew Kleiman, the Marxist economist I mentioned at the start, all of them were adamant that Capitalism in itself has nothing specially, as, as specifically to do with markets per se. Markets have to be competitive. And yes, like you said, um, there has to exist a relationship of dependence. Some people that are property owning and others that are not. Uh, and um, when these um, Marxists talked about, cap uh, uh, about capitalism, they uh, defined it in a, uh, maybe in a, in a weird roundabout way. So what they said is, let's first look at what are the typical consequences of capitalism? What uh, libertarians and Marxists would agree upon? And that is, usually we say that in capitalism you have a constant self-sustaining uh, modern economic growth, so constant increases in GDP per capita, year over year, decade over decade, century over century, obsession with growth, maybe some Marxists would put it. Uh, secondly, we have constantly increasing labor productivity. And uh, lastly, uh, all of this happens because uh, there, are, there, there is a constant process of uh, cutting costs in the production process, of introducing labor-saving uh, machinery in the production process, and of in, uh, constantly innovating technologically. So this is what my Marxist taught me, that all of this is what usually uh, results from capitalism. And then they said, now just ask yourself, Tibor or uh, Chris, just ask yourself, um, what should the basic economic structures or institutions in a society be like so that the people uh, in a society would behave in such a way to bring about those economic consequences of constantly increasing labor productivity and GDP per capita and constantly innovating technologically? And their answer would be competition. You need competition before where markets were not competitive, um, merchants were selling uh, by using the age-old principle of uh, buying cheap to sell dear. That, that is the obverse of competition. Competition erodes such uh, super profits or extra profits. So you need competition. And yes, like you said, Chris, you need this relationship of dependence. You need a mass of landless laborers who, be, who could be um, employed by the bosses and who could be made to work with improved machinery and who could be made to work by, uh, with higher labor productivity. Okay. So later in the book, you look at a lot of contemporary empirical studies but you also spend a decent amount of time talking about the historical origins of capitalism. Oh, yeah. And that's a big topic. And there is a large literature trying to tease out the causes of, well, we're going to make some distinctions between the industrial revolution per <laughs> se and capitalism or the great enrichment or whatever you want to call it. But the cause of whatever it was that led to large growth in wealth sometime initially in the 1750s in England and the Netherlands and expanding around the world slowly thereafter. So can you say a little bit about what main scholars you draw on and where you come down on that question of what initially caused capitalism and or the Industrial Revolution and what's the difference between those things? 
Yeah, sure. I guess one holdover from my Marxist past is that I'm still quite a materialist um, a scholar or somebody who looks at material causes of various phenomena, and I'm not all that at ease with cultural explanations, although this is changing now that I've discovered, I mean, has been changing for a few years that I've discovered uh, cultural evolutionary theory, the works of uh, people like uh, Joseph Henrik and, and people like that. Uh, so, like you said, maybe we should make a distinction between explanations that draw more on the material uh, potential material causes of the transition and those that uh, deal more with cultural or ideational factors. And here I would say that uh, in the materialist camp, the most influential scholar uh, for me was Robert Brenner, the Marxist I already mentioned, and uh, other people around him like the historian Christopher Dyer and the Marxist historian Spencer Dimock, people like that. Um, and then in the culturalist camp, I guess uh, we can't uh, we can't do anything else but to mention uh, great scholars such, such as Joseph Henrik, who says that the uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, with its strictures uh, about um, family life and kinship structures, caused the transition to modernity and capitalism and the markets and all the rest of it. And uh, Joel Mokir, uh, who uh, argues that the Enlightenment, uh, the Enlightenment movement was the main uh, reason for at least the Industrial Revolution, if not um, the commercial revolution or uh, the emergence of capitalism itself. Uh, and then you also have maybe on the materialist side, you have Robert um, Allen. Robert Allen is one of the foremost historians of the Industrial Revolution, and he has some disagreements with the guy who mostly influenced me, so Robert Brenner. Um, so so this is, these are the contours. Uh, maybe... Um, because I, I, in the book, I deal with both of both of these camps. I am affirmatively in the materialist camp, and I critique uh, Henrik and Mokir and other culturalists. Maybe I could uh, start with with them first. So uh, Joseph Henrik has this story about how between 580 and 1580, uh, the church suddenly, for reasons that are not important, decided to uh, ban cousin marriages, to enforce monogamy, where there was only polygyny before in Europe and to um, try to encourage neo-locality, so neo-local residences. That means that uh, when um, young couples marry and get together, they move away from their parents uh, to a different village, def definitely set up their own separate household. And he says that these um, normative strictures that started in uh, in the 6th century AD, that they led to a, a wholly new social environment in which people of Europe found themselves in. So. Uh, um, after a few centuries, they now were in different villages. They have severed connections with their extended uh, kinship networks, and they were facing total strangers in their daily lives. And they, if they wanted to get on with their life, they had to be seen as trustworthy, and they had to trust others. They had to cooperate with strangers, no longer just rely on their own families. And they had to trade with people. They had to set up voluntary associations. And all of that, Henrik says, over the millennium, between uh, the 6th and the 16th century led to uh, the emergence of modernity. So uh, individualism, generalized fairness, generalized trust, all of these cultural correlates of modernity, and all of those were then responsible for the efflorescence of trade, uh, for the um, booming of voluntary associations, for the rise of parliaments, for uh, the struggle for representation, uh, democracy, and all of that. Now, Joel Mokir has a different emphasis. He says that the Enlightenment movement of the 16th or the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century and then the Enlightenment movement and the Republic of Letters of the 17th and 18th century, all of that created a 
propitious ideational environment for scientific um, experimentation, for intellectual innovation. And all of that enabled, especially people in England, to apply all of these scientific breakthroughs to production so that they could expel labor from production, so they could set up factories, use uh, steam power, and simply unleash industrial revolution. Now, maybe you want me to say something about why I disagree um, with, with them before moving on to my explanation. How would you like to go about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd love that because I have read summaries of, in some cases, and, and the actual work in some cases of some of these scholars, and I have not landed anywhere in particular. And I've spoken to several authors on the show you know, who do have opinions about this, and it's, I think it's a super important and very interesting topic. So yeah, I'd love to hear your critiques and why you disagree with the, the cultural explanations. Sure. I mean, they're all impressive scholars. Both Mostly Mokir disagree and, or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I, I'm quite convinced by the statistical evidence that especially Henrik Marshall's in his book, when he argues that, for example, if you look at uh, various correlations, you can see quite clearly that the length, uh, the length of the exposure to church in Europe, especially Western Europe, places like Germany and France and England, um, the length of the uh, church's exposure correlates quite strongly with the uh, kinship intensity index. The, the longer that you were under the influence of the church, the lower today the kinship intensity index in your countries and the lesser the prevalence of cousin marriages is. So obviously the church did something right uh, when, when it, or, or it was efficacious when it uh, banned all of those normative practices. And secondly, he also draws our attention to the fact that um, these various um, correlates of modernity, normative correlates of modernity, like generalized trust, generalized fairness, individualism, non-conformity, all of those show up in places where the church was mostly present, uh, in, in places where kinship networks, the family, in a way was destroyed or dismantled in comparison to, to what came before. So that con that is convincing to me. But the, the biggest hang-up I have is that his story is, uh, we, we could call it pan-Western European. It applies to the whole of Western Europe uh, because all of those places had a similar, I think, eight or ninth century long um, exposure to the church. Um, and the issue I have and uh, that I show in my book is that only England was special between 1580 and 1880. Only in England do we see the takeoff of self-sustaining modern economic growth. From uh, uh, late 16th, early 17th century on, you see constant increases in labor productivity in England, but not in the Netherlands, definitely not in France, Germany, Austria, Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal. Uh, only in England do you see after stagnation centuries of stagnation of GDP per capita, sudden increases, year-on-year -year increases in GDP per capita. That doesn't happen in Italy. It doesn't happen in the Netherlands. Uh, it doesn't happen in France, Germany, between 1500 and uh, 1880, so after the Middle Ages. And if you look at urbanization rates, again, what you see is that England was a backwater, uh, urban backwater, uh, before the end of the Middle Ages. I think that the urbanization rate was 3%. And then in mere three centuries, uh, up till uh, 1800s, it went to more than 20%, so a sevenfold increase, while France and Germany, for example, which were at around 4 to 5% of urbanization rate in the end of the Middle Ages, so 1580, they only moved up a few percentage points, well under 10%. Uh, in those three centuries, which is roughly in line with China and India, which Henrik would definitely not claim that were on their way to modernity because they were not under the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. So the fact that you had this 
special occurrence in England. And then later on, of course, the Industrial Revolution co comes about in England, not in the Netherlands, not in Germany, Italy. All of that makes me doubtful of his claim. Uh, there's also the issue that um, uh, other aspects of modernity, like democracy, democratic representation, that comes four centuries uh, after the, the most of the work done by um, Henrik's thesis is accomplished. So in the late 19th, early 20th century, while he claims that the rise of parliaments and democratic representation should already start occurring between 1500 and 1800. And, and this is the similar issue I have with Joel Mokir's thesis. Definitely, the Enlightenment had some influence on the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of modernity. But the fact that mm, the Enlightenment movement was very strongly present both in England and in the Netherlands and France and Germany and Italy, uh, Mokir himself says that many of the inventions that were applied to production in England during the Industrial Revolution actually originated from France. So the fact that England was special, but the Enlightenment movement was present all over the place in Western Europe, that makes me think that there has to be more. I want to ask a question about the distinction between materialist and idealist explanations of this kind of thing. So when Marxists talk about being materialist, we're not talking about physics in the physical, the <laughs> physical world. We're, we're talking about explanations for large social changes originating in the material realities and and often the economic material realities of the world so like for instance you know maybe some major technological change like the advent of electricity or something like that would that be a good like materialist causal example of why a change might have hurt? not not that it necessarily is a major marxist example but that kind of thing whereas these cultural explanations would be more in the idealist camp. But that is especially a classical Marxist example of uh, being a materialist. Definitely referring to trying to deduce various social changes from technological improvement. Definitely, yeah. Okay. And so that, that's a relevant distinction. And and you're saying you're, you're coming from the Marxist tradition that you've mostly shed, but you you still are more persuaded by some of the more materialist explanations and are a little, at least a little bit more skeptical of people like Joel McKeer and Heinrich, who, who are offering idealist and cultural explanations. My question is, political institutional causes, is that traditionally thought of as fitting more in the materialist or more in the idealist explanation? Yeah, there's a bit of a controversy about that. And I should be more clear, you're right about um, what, what does it even mean when I say that I'm a, more a materialist scholar. So I, I usually I don't refer to technological change like Marxists do, and they would probably not call me a materialist. I am a materialist in the sense that I try to uh, when, it, when it comes to these grand social transformations, like the movement from feudalism to capitalism, I try to deduce those, at least ultimately, and not in approximate, but in an ultimate sense, I try to deduce them from the economic interests and economic power relations and economic institutions and changes in economic institutions between people. So a materialist in that sense, a materialist in the sense of rational choice theory, I would guess. Okay, so now you've said something about the scholars offering cultural explanations and some of your critique there. You want to say something about the, the different scholars offering a more materialist explanation as well as your particular explanation, which uh, I don't know, you know to what extent it's, it's original and to what extent it's, it's a synthesis. Maybe you could say something about that. Sure, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, 
Let me, let's maybe start with Robert Allen because he's the, the most famous of the bunch. So uh, Allen's explanation uh, at the proximate level for the Industrial Revolution is that you had this lopsided relationship between the price of labor and the price of capital. Workers were kind of pricey. They, they, were, they were expensive in England in comparison to the rest of Europe in the 17th and 18th century preceding the Industrial Revolution. And you also had uh, access to cheap energy in England, but not elsewhere. And he says that uh, it would be uh, beneficial for businessmen to try to introduce labor-saving technology in the production process because workers were so expensive, you try to shed those workers. And that then led for him to the Industrial Revolution. It was a sort of a way to deal with the problem of expensive uh, workers, um, to try to reduce your cost as a businessman. And then he says that to understand why that was the case, you have to look at the preceding centuries, so centuries between the 15th or 16th and 19th century, between 1500 and 1800 AD. And he says that there, there were some special things occurring in England back then. That is, first of all, England had a large internal domestic market. Uh, secondly, labor productivity, like I already mentioned, was uh, constantly increasing, even back then, before the Industrial Revolution. And then lastly, um, uh, you had a consumerist revolution. So many people in England started buying their, their basic foodstuffs and other necessities that they needed on the market instead of growing them themselves um, on their own land, uh, like peasants would in France or, or even in Italy and Germany. And uh, so he says that because of all those factors, workers were pricey. There was a high demand for workers because a market, uh, the, the general consumer market was quite large in England. Everybody was buying stuff. You needed to produce that stuff. To produce that stuff, you needed to employ workers in your in, in your uh, shops. And that's why, because of the high demand for labor, workers were pricey, and that then led to the Industrial Revolution. But then to explain why that was the case, why England was so different between 1500 and 1800 AD in these uh, aspects, I think you would then have to go to quote-unquote, my explanation, which I actually um, borrow from Robert Brenner and Christopher Dyer, and that is you should look at what happened in the centuries preceding all of those phenomena. So before the end of the Middle Ages, in the late 14th and throughout the 15th century. And what happened there is that you had the plague pandemic that hit the whole of Europe, uh, including England, and it killed off one-third to one-half of everybody. And in England, especially, um, the English landlords were now faced with a revenue crisis, especially because in the aftermath of the plague, the bargaining position of peasants in England was increased because they were now such a rare commodity, and that they managed to uh, struggle for the abolition of serfdom. They abolished serfdom, which was basically a semi-slaveholding institution, and the English landlords were now in a pickle because they couldn't get uh, the surpluses that they could get before the, the pandemic. And so they had two options how to address that crisis. One option was what happened in the continent uh, with their French counterparts. Uh, in, in France, uh, English, uh, in France, landlords tried to address the revenue crisis by joining and building up the absolutist tax office state. The, the serfdom was also abolished in France, and they uh, tried to get around that problem by using the insti institution of uh, taxation and the king's military to extort uh, freeholding peasants. In England, that was not on the table for various historical reasons that have to do with the fact, uh, with the manner in which the mm, the Norman conquest of the 11th century proceeded, but we can leave that for some other time. And so the second option in England was for these uh, landlords to try to get rid of their uh, large land holdings 
they, uh, which amounted to one third of the best land in England. There, there was so much land in the private hands of uh, English landlords, much more than in France, for example. So these uh, English landlords tried to now get rid of that land because it was left unworked by the serfs because they, uh, some of them died off and in the, in the end serfdom was abolished. And they um, decided to lease it out, to rent it out to wealthier peasants called yeomen. And Robert Allen has spoken about the rise of the yeoman farmer and how important that was for the capitalist transition before the Industrial Revolution in England. And um, when they did that, here we are really talking about a lot of land, hundreds of acres of land per individual landlord. Uh, when these wealthier peasants went from farming 20 to 30 acres to farming hundreds of acres of land, they suddenly got the incentive to specialize in the production of a single crop that they could uh, produce as efficiently as possible and that they could then sell on the market to get some money in return and then buy everything that they needed for their livelihood on the market instead of growing them, gro growing it themselves on their subsistence farms. So here you have a movement towards Smithian growth because of this transference of land from landlords to wealthier peasants. More importantly, perhaps, the landlords uh, instituted temporary contracts. They would uh, th th this um, land that uh, got into the hands of yeomen would uh, would be uh, back on the market in a few years. So the yeomen, the wealthier peasants, now had a strong incentive to try to compete against each other on the market for agricultural products. They try to be as efficient as possible. They try to introduce technological innovations in the production process to accumulate as much of surplus as possible, so that they could repay the rent at the end of the term and they could get uh, another contract. So that, that movement, that emerging competition on the um, market for agricultural product, that was the unintended consequences of the English landlords trying to simply maintain, maintain themselves as they were in the light of the revenue crisis that was caused by the pandemic, given the uh, the, the context of England, which was, which was different, uh, very different from France, all of that, I think, caused the agricultural revolution between the uh, 15th, uh, 16th and 18th century, uh, all of that that um, Alan talks about. Um, and that was then responsible for the consumerist revolution, and that was then in turn responsible for the industrial revolution. You, you said agricultural revolution a second ago. Did you mean in industrial? No, agricultural, actually, actually. No, yeah. So, so like the uh, revolution in, in the way they were conducting their agriculture. Yeah, sometimes, got it, got it. sometimes it's called the agrarian capitalist revolution. Sometimes it's called the second agricultural revolution. Got you. So we've got capitalism established. And then now in subsequent chapters, you, you go through a variety of potential issues or shortcomings or, or areas of critique that people might have of capitalism and, and try to come at it using this rational choice model and looking at the empirical evidence and come to a, a, a balanced assessment of what the, you know, what the evidence is. You, you, you do a great job describing and summarizing dozens and dozens of studies and, and what they say on balance. So maybe we don't have to hit all of them, but one of the things you take on is exploitation. How does capitalism fare with regard to exploitation? Good topic for you to take on coming from a Marxist perspective. So <laughs> firstly, what is the initial classical Marxist view of what exploitation is? How has that changed over time? And, and how are you talking about exploitation ultimately in this, in this book? Yeah, so Marxists have had weird uh, thoughts about exploitation, uh, defining it and then trying to explain why it happens. I I'm not on board with all of that. But I would say that a pragmatic definition 
of exploitation that even Marxists could, uh, could um, accept, and I think libertarians could as well, uh, simply involves two characteristics. First of all, there has to be some unequal exchange of something going on between two parties. Somebody has to, for example, perform some work for somebody else that amounts to a value of X dollars. And then somebody has to give that guy something in return for that, let's say some wages that amounts to uh, some other amount of dollars that are different from, from the, the, the work that has been performed. And somebody has to lose out from that. So um, a non-reciprocal exchange has to happen. And then secondly, and very much importantly, I think that this has to happen not just because somebody voluntarily decided to gift somebody uh, something uh, without expecting anything in return or without expecting equal remuner remuneration in return, um, but there has to be some vulnerable position that was um, uh, that one of the parties was in and that one of the parties acceded to the unequal exchange because of that vulnerable position. So that would be, I guess, exploitation. The classical example that we don't have to go into is the guy falls in the pit in a hole, and then somebody else comes along and offers him a rope to get him out. But he also says that I'll only get you out of the hole if you offer to give me half of your wage till till, till the rest of your life. That, that's a sort of an unequal exchange. And uh, the guy accepted that only because he was in a vulnerable position. And that definition also, by the way, allows for exploitation to be a positive sum game, which Marxists sometimes deny. But I think we, we should affirm exploitation when it occurs, usually it's a positive sum game. And that's why workers voluntarily accept uh, to being exploited, because it's better than the alternative. That, that is, it's better to be exploited under capitalism than not be exploited at all, not being employed at all. So that's exploitation. Now, of course, somebody would say, well, but um, look at the perfect comp competition econ 101 model. There's no exploitation there. You have the marginal product of the worker. That's the value of the worker to the firm. And you have the wage that the firm pays the worker. And in perfect competition, they're in rough accordance or in total accordance. So there is no unequal exchange there. And also there are loads of buyers and sellers of labor power. So what's the deal? Who's in a vulnerable position? And I agree, of course, as the model stands, yeah, sure, that goes. But uh, in actuality, I can imagine, and we have many economic models that uh, show that, I can imagine various sources of vulnerabilities. So you have the oligopsony model, you have the monopsonistic competition model. In uh, extreme cases, you have the monopsony model, which all uh, relax the assumption of per perfect competition. So they introduce, for example, a condition where you have a few um, a, a small number of large employers, large firms, and uh, competition is curtailed somewhat because of market concentration in such conditions. But okay, that usually doesn't happen in labor markets. So what else? Well, you have, for example, a surge cost and frictions. So um, workers sometimes see it as costly to try to inform themselves of their outside options of employment, and maybe they're exploited right now uh, at, the, at their current employer, but and they know that they're exploited, but they don't want to move to somebody else who would offer them a higher wage simply because they don't want to inform, them, inform themselves of that um, uh, alternative. Or you have, let's just say, a heterogeneous preferences. Some workers are so attached for emotional reasons to their workplace uh, or for non-pecuniary benefits that they get that they tolerate an amount of exploitation and they don't switch jobs uh, to, so that they, their marginal product would get in line uh, with the wage. And when we look at empirical um, estimates, we see that on average, this is data coming from the United States, on average, uh, a worker is exploited to the tune of 15 to 20%. So there's a 15 to 20% discrepancy between the marginal product and the wage. And you can um, measure that in a variety of ways. 
First of all, you can look at labor supply elasticities, uh, try to calculate them from uh, exit rates and uh, application rates, and you see that uh, elasticities come out to be something like 3.5, 4.5, which implies a 15 to 20 percent mismatch between the marginal product and the wage. You can look um, at sudden deaths of workers when workers suddenly die and they're not replaced yet. You can look at what happens with firm revenue and cost, and you see that firm revenue declines by a more substantial amount than, than uh, the, the marginal firm cost, which implies that there was a discrepancy going on. You can look, lastly, let, let me just mention one last thing. You can look at market concentration, which does not necessarily imply reduced competition, but it might. It might. And you can look at, um, we have evidence both from, the, from Europe and from United States. And what we see is that more highly concentrated industries, when you try to control for everything uh, other that's relevant, in comparison to uh, industries that are not as highly concentrated, you see higher wage markdowns. So higher wage markdowns in more highly concentrated industries, which implies that there's probably not all that much competition. And so there's some exploitation, some discrepancy between the marginal product of the worker and, and the wage. Does this concept of exploitation, can it apply just as well to other non-wage prices? like just a consumer buying something? And are there other areas of the economy or prices where where similar discrepancies like that come up? Sure, yeah. So uh, what happens is you can look at mark um, uh, price markups. Uh, one um, uh, classical economic thought was that maybe more highly concentrated industries that were ostensibly um, um, of a lesser competitive nature, maybe uh, um, customers are getting fleeced because um, these um, semi-quasi-monopolists or uh, oligops, uh, oligopolists can charge higher prices. So prices of, for goods that are higher than the marginal cost to the firm of producing that uh, product. And uh, um, funnily enough, what you see from these same empirical um, studies that I've been summarizing now is that uh, in more highly concentrated industries, you do see wage markdowns, so exploitations of, uh, exploitation of workers, but you don't see high uh, price markups. So it doesn't seem that customers are getting ripped off. Okay, so then this might be happening under capitalism, but a relevant question is compared to what? What's the alternative and do similar types of exploitation happen in less capitalist, non-market, traditional, socialist, or whatever other types of economies? Yeah, definitely. You definitely saw that. So in feudalism, the rate of exploitation was much, much higher than in capitalism. Uh, it's hard to even measure that. But if you use some proxies, you see that the average peasant was exploited to the tune of 40 to 50 percent or even more at certain periods. Uh, and if the average worker in the United States, for example, is exploited to the tune of 15 percent, that's a big difference. And of course, we all know what happened in um, really existing socialist societies in the Soviet Union, to an extent in Yugoslavia, of which Slovenia, my country, was uh, once a part of, um, you saw great exploitation of workers. And uh, maybe even if workers were not all that exploited in the sense that their marginal product, if you can even talk about the marginal product of the worker in a planned economy, but that their marginal product was not in that much of a discrepancy with the wage that the worker received, maybe not. But the fact that these countries had low living standards, the fact that the um, shelves in stores were empty, the fact that they were beset by all these problems of production and distribution, all of that, I think, should lead us to 
the conclusion that um, uh, really existing capitalism definitely beats out really existing socialism or really existing feudalism. And even analytical Marxists like the ones I've mentioned, Eric Colin Wright and people like that, all say, of course, planned economies, Soviet Union, or, or, or whatever we've tried uh, when it comes to socialism in the past, all of that is much worse on net, on balance, in comparison to real world uh, capitalism. And that might be the case even if capitalism exploited workers more than socialism did, if the trade-off with, say, very much higher rates of growth or higher wages, because even uh, under this under this way of thinking about exploitation, as you said, it's still a positive sum game. It's still, like the exploited workers are still benefiting compared to not being, if you have an exploitative job, you're better off than if you don't have that job at all. It just would be better still if you weren't exploited in this way or if you were, if you were getting paid closer to your marginal productivity. But it still might be worth it, even if under socialism there were no exploitation, but hmm. the wages were dramatically lower, the growth was lower, or something like that. It, maybe it wouldn't be, but that trade-off is, is possible under this way of thinking about exploitation. Absolutely. Um, the living standards for the, I'm talking about the um, data coming from the US now, the living standards for the average blue-collar blue collar worker have um, risen 20 fold since the industrial revolution. So even though they're exploited to an extent on my account, that doesn't mean that first of all, their living standards have declined or that they've risen just barely. Definitely not. Yeah. Okay. Your basic thesis here about exploitation is that workers are exploited under capitalism, but probably not as much as people think. And, and capital capitalism itself has actually reduced a lot of exploitation. So the exploitation that remains is probably not distinctively capitalist. It's maybe a ubiquitous feature of economic activity or something like that or, or, or whatever. And capitalism fixes a lot of it, but not all of it. Exactly, exactly. So what I think my Marxist and socialist friends miss out and what I missed uh, years ago is that competition, market competition, uh, when we are talking about uh, labor markets, market competition is actually beneficial to the workers. Uh, not, not just because it increases their outside options, but because there's this um, uh, Econ 101 perfect competition story that you can tell. Uh, Chris Fryman sometimes um, says that uh, if you had a auction and a $10 bill were being auctioned, uh, auctioned off and people were bidding for that $10 bill, somebody would maybe offer $5 at first, but somebody else would then have a profit opportunity and would uh, offer six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way until you reach um, the same value that the dollar that you're getting, that you're paying for, equals the, do the, the dollar amount that you're giving away. And, and if you just uh, replace um, uh, uh, this simple story with uh, workers and employers, employers, if there's perfect competition and somebody's being exploited, employers would have a profit opportunity to employ that exploited worker by trying to bid up his wage to lure him away from the first employer. So if the, the first employer is employing somebody um, at $1 an hour and the worker is actually bringing in $5 an hour, so he's being exploited at the rate of five, $4 an hour, five minus one, the second employer would then pay him $2 to get him uh, to move from, first, from the first employer to the second one. And the second employer would still benefit because five minus minus two is three, and then the third uh, employer would also do that. And uh, at the end, the wage would equilibrate uh, at around the marginal product. So competition helps workers. And when you said that um, the re resulting, the remaining exploitation right now on capitalist markets is maybe non-capitalist uh, uh, in nature, yeah, I think that could be it. So 
uh, it is cap it, it's it's non-capitalist in nature because it's produced by market concentration uh, because there's not enough competition when it comes to some la labor markets and when the issue are heterogeneous uh, preferences and the uh, search and cost frictions that workers have when switching jobs then th that's also a feature of i would say the human condition that you have these search costs and frictions not, not of capitalism specifically yeah Hey everyone, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a break to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening to these episodes and giving me the opportunity to speak with people I admire and read amazing books every week, every other week, whatever. If you are interested in helping this little engine that could of a show grow, uh, please just recommend it to a friend. Recommend it to a friend. Maybe give it a give it a five star rating on one of those places you listen to it at, but. Really, if you just recommend it to someone, that, that goes a long way um, for a small show like this. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. Keep listening. And back to the show. Let's talk about inequality. So my reading of the book is that probably of all of the potential weaknesses you bring up of capitalism, do you think that this is the strongest one or the, maybe the one that's most distinctively capitalist? Or is that close to right? Or what, what, what do you want to say about yeah. inequality? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I, I think I, I, I do. Uh, so um, with inequality, you, you have income inequality and you have wealth inequality and you can measure it in different ways. You have within country inequality, between country inequality, global inequality. You have to keep all of those apart because the trend lines don't always go together. And when uh, some politicians just say uh, inequality without the adjective uh, income or wealth or distinguishing between all these, uh, between all these measures, saying uh, inequalities have been rising for the past 40 years and have never been as high as, as today. Well, what are you talking about? Which parts of the world, which types of inequality, which measures, because they, they just crisscross some of them. Uh, so in, inequality is a complex topic. But in general, I would say that the worry of most people today is that uh, under capitalism, even if people are not exploited to a substantial degree, even if their living standards are rising, there's still, still inequality and maybe even still rising inequality. Or even if inequality is not rising, it's still ineradicable, an ineradicable feature of capitalism, and isn't that problematic in a way? I would say that on first glance, it's not problematic. The economist um, Deirdre McCloskey comes to mind in her critique of uh, Thomas Piketty. She says, look, man, uh, what are you worrying about? Uh, everybody is better off today than they were 20 years ago. So it's not like that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. No, the rich are getting richer and the poor are also getting richer, but at a slower pace. So why worry about inequality? You're just worrying about a, a vague feeling of envy. And I would say, well, maybe, but not really. If you look at the various correlations I go over in the book, um, you see that um, inequality for various reasons simply correlates uh, in, and sometimes even in a causal manner, uh, correlates with various social problems like reduced social trust, like increased homicide rates, like um, certain uh, health problems, uh, obesity, for example. And then um, you, it's hard to tease out whether this is just correlation or uh, there's something causal going on. But in some cases, we have firm evidence that something causal is going on. And it's interesting to ask, well, why? How come uh, just a, a difference between income between uh, various people would cause obesity. Well, yeah, it, it's a hard story to sell, but the raw correlations do point in, point in that direction. And then maybe 
uh, if you just move on uh, on a theoretical uh, level and think of it from a rational choice perspective, I think you have something to worry about if you are, as a libertarian, concerned with rent-seeking, for example, and the regulatory capture, you can understand quite simply how uh, if some people, the elites, are getting uh, more and more uh, of uh, economic resources in such a way that it outpaces, the, the rate of growth outpaces the rate of growth of economic resources for all the other ordinary groups of um, people in a society, well, that could be then transformed. Those economic resources could be used to gain an outsized influence in the political sphere, to bribe politicians, to make mutually advantageous deals with them, and to simply capture their regulatory machinery. Now, of course, a libertarian would say, well, we have to do away with the government. And we both know that this is not really uh, not really feasible. So uh, in currently existing a mixed economy where you have uh, a large government sector and a large um, private market, I think even libertarians would have to worry to an extent about inequalities uh, simply because of the problem of um, uh, an increased opportunity to rent seek in uh, unequal society because the ordinary people don't have uh, the, the same amount of resources with, with, with which they could counter the outsized influence that the, the rich have, for example. And to be clear, when we're talking about the correlations between inequality and these other unattractive features of society, are the main correlations about particularly high levels of inequality, not about societies that just say diverge from egalitarianism, which doesn't really exist anywhere? Yeah, it's both. It's both. So there are um, some threshold effects. Only after you reach a Gini level on a scale from zero to 100, a Gini is a measure of inequality. Um, uh, after a Gini of 35 or 40, um, uh, America, the United States is currently at a Gini of 40 to 41 after taxes. And um, Slovenia, for example, is at a Gini of 25. Sweden is around 29. The OECD average, I think, is 30, 31. So America, the United States is an outlier here. Uh, and when you get to the U.S., levels of inequality, you get to see some quite um, bad effects. But below that level, sometimes nothing bad happens. But other times, even below that level, you do have some correlations uh, pointing in the wrong direction, even there. So I don't know if this is actually empirically the case, but some, sometimes I worry about the inequality measures inadvertently penalizing what, even from a left-wing perspective, you would think of as an attractive feature of a society. Namely, if you're a wealthy society that has a lot of immigration, isn't that going to hurt your measures of inequality? And the United States, even though there's plenty of controversy around it, tends to have quite a bit of, of immigration, usually from much poorer countries. So you might have a situation where poor immigrants come to the United States, make themselves dramatically better off than they were, but they're still, on average, significantly poorer than even poor Americans, and create a situation where... American inequality goes up, even though everybody should be cheering on this event. Does, well, I guess one, you know, do these measures of inequality ever control for, for rates of immigration, first of all? And uh, or are there features like that or other kinds of things that that tend to drive up measures of inequality? There's definitely something to that. That's a, that's a good comment. And no, uh, the studies typically don't control for that. You just get the raw inequality data. And when people, like you said, interpret that um, raw inequality as um, uh, straightforwardly bad, yeah, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, especially in some outlier countries like the United States, I think there is a causal role or explanatory role to play for these high levels of inequality uh, that uh, that has to do with um, 
semi-open borders and migration. I mean, the United States doesn't have uh, open borders. Uh, Brennan and uh, Kaplan would yeah. be uh, would be aghast. But uh, but yeah, of course. Uh, but the even United relative States, to a lot of other countries, it's they still have more immigration. Absolutely, absolutely, and historically, historically they definitely had so in in the twentieth century. Uh, so you're right. I'll have to think more about that. Uh, that that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that uh, before. And then you mentioned the particular mechanism of how, like, there's this question, okay, how does inequality turn itself into social instability and other, or obesity or whatever other kinds of problems? You mentioned one mechanism, which is, was the only one I remembered reading that like gelled in my head. I can, I can absolutely see how that version of high levels of material inequality could lead to social inability. Basically, you ha- if you have a small group of very wealthy elites who are substantially more wealthy than other people, they're going to have a better time basically outbidding others on you know buying power and then using that power. So it's like an, the inequality is an, is an indirect means towards achieving more raw forms of power. And are there other plausible mechanisms for how inequality turns into social instability or, or other unattractive things that you find plausible? Yeah, I think so. Uh, when it comes to social trust, for example, when it comes to social trust, I can imagine social trust being eroded in a, uh, a social environment with high levels of income and wealth inequality. And maybe Deirdre McCloskey would call that envy and would say that if we are adult, rational, enlightened people, we shouldn't be envious. Okay, sure, but it is an ineradicable uh, feature of human nature that we compare ourselves to others. And when people compare themselves to others and see that some other people have it much better than they themselves do, I would say that even if absolute living standards are okay for everybody, that is going to be a problem for social trust, for social cooperation. People will be angry at each other. People will be envious. So uh, I can see that as a direct mechanism of inequality eroding trust. Can you say something about measures of capitalism? You, in this book, lean into basically measures of economic freedom, I think, as the as one, a useful empirical measure and and a more fine-grained measure of how capitalist a society is. It doesn't it doesn't fall into this trap of just saying like you're capitalist and you're not capitalist. There's there's degrees of capitalism. What do you think are the most relevant measures empirically and what are the concerns with those measures? Yeah, I think the economic uh, freedom indexes are the best we have currently. Uh, Some people, and I do that as well, proxy capitalism by looking at GDP per capita. And you would just simply say that the more wealthy a country is, the more capitalist it is. But there are problems with that. Um, But um, indexes of economic freedom actually measure economic and political, but more economic institutions in a society. And if we define, like we did at the beginning of our talk, capitalism as a set of economic institutions, well, that's an a straightforward measure then. And uh, you have um, various uh, institutes like uh, the Fraser Institute and the Heritage Foundation that construct these um, measures of economic freedom. And you can have some quibbles with them. Uh, Usually I'm wary of um, the Heritage Foundation because if I'm not mistaken, they use um, subjective uh, measures of economic um, uh, freedom. I mean, everybody does that, but uh, they do um, that uh, measure in-house. 
So uh, they pick their own experts, and these experts of the Heritage Foundation then measure the economic freedom of a country based on their own, of course, political prejudices and biases, while the Fraser Institute um, uh, prides itself on using third-party data, so data from the World Bank and the IMF, which of course relies on subject subjective measures to a large uh, part, but those um, institutions are less obviously libertarian, uh, while the Heritage Foundation and Fraser obviously are more uh, libertarian. Um, so uh, the Fraser Institute's index then has five categories, uh, size of government, uh, legal property, legal system and property rights, regulation, freedom of international trade and sound money, and all of those five main categories that make up the total economic freedom score of a country in a particular year can get broken down in various subcomponents. I think the property rights and legal system component has eight subcomponents like um, reliability of police, security of property rights, the independence of the judiciary, uh, lack of corruption, and so on. Um, and you can then uh, in, in various ways, pick at that, uh, pick at those um, uh, measures. For example, one critique of them coming from a Marxist perspective was uh, definitional, not really uh, having any uh, qualms with the way that um, various uh, components are measured, uh, but simply uh, Ben Burgess, a socialist philosopher, was writing, I think, a year ago in the uh, Jacobin magazine, and he was critiquing Jason Brennan and Peter Leeson because they, in a, a couple of articles, used these uh, economic freedom indexes to try to show that they correlate positively with various desirable social outcomes. And then they concluded that capitalism seems to go hand in hand, even though it, you can't say that it's been causally responsible for various um, positive social outcomes. And Burgess, in his critique, says, wait a minute, uh, even definitionally, definitionally, even if you accept the external validity of these concepts, um, uh, definitionally, uh, various subcomponents of the legal system, like uh, the reliability of police and the independence of the judiciary, have nothing to do with capitalism conceptually, definitionally. So you get spurious results, he claims. You basically look at countries that are um, that have a strong legal system and that have also good social outcomes, and then you claim victory for capitalism. And he says that that is unfair because even in a non-capitalist system, not in, in the Soviet Union, but in a non-capitalist system, allegedly in the future, you would uh, try to take care of the, uh, the uh, institutions of police and, and uh, um, uh, ju uh, the judicial process. And so if there is a lack of corruption in a future socialist system, is that really a measure of capitalism? And I, in the book, I say, okay, sure, I'm, there are some problems with that critique conceptually, but maybe let's take on that on board. And then I try to recalculate the uh, economic freedom scores for various countries in the year 2019 uh, in line with Burgess's critique. And I then try to see if the existing correlations uh, to which um, uh, Leeson and Brennan referred to, if they stand up to such a, uh, such a redefinition or recalculation. And in the book I show with scatter plots and basic correlations that basically nothing changes. There is some movement from the first quartile of economic freedom to the second and from the first to the third, but most countries in the first and the fourth uh, quartile stay where they were, and um, the correlations are just as strong as if you include all of those measures of um, the ju judicial system and corruption and, and so on. So I think that that critique, for example, doesn't hold water. You just, you drop all of the measures and sub-measures that are not very obviously linked to, a, you know, a solid definition of capitalism. Yeah, like, like, exactly. you said, like independent judiciary, strength of police, and there are other ones too, and just just end up sticking with basically like strong property rights and and low regulation and things like that. 
yeah. free trade. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense to me. And 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 you know, for what it's worth, I've had similar thoughts about those those <laughs> measures. That are they including outcome measures rather than input measures in in what counts as capitalism? Yeah. yeah. But maybe free markets and property rights cause rule of law in other ways or an independent judiciary. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. In that way, I'm not sure what would count, what would be a capitalist measure of those things. Or maybe you don't need to measure those things in terms of capitalism. I mean, if I, only, I wouldn't measure them, I wouldn't yeah. measure them in terms of uh, capitalism. Yeah. So you've got several other chapters on interesting topics that, that we, we won't get into for considerations of time. You'll have to read the book, talk about the relationship between capitalism and general uh, social morality, you know, trust and levels of violence. And, and there's there's a lot of fascinating research on basically suggesting that, you know, exposure to markets and more capitalist societies ten, tends to actually increase things like social trust and trustworthiness and, and other kinds of what most people would consider moral behavior. And that comes as a surprise to a lot of people, I think, who aren't familiar with that literature. It was a surprise to me, even as a pro-capitalist person, I, I wouldn't have expected there to be much of any correlation there one way or the other. Retroactively, it, it somewhat makes sense to me that consistent exposure to strangers in a positive way might make you more trusting of mm -hmm. people you don't know, whereas otherwise you might only be generally trusting of people you have close personal knowledge of. The market is a, is a, a lot of exposure that you wouldn't otherwise have to working and cooperating with people you don't have personal relationships with. You also have the ending chapter of capitalism and the environment, another big topic. Do you want to say something before we start signing off? Say something briefly about your, you kind of come come to the conclusion that capitalism good, mostly good. You don't come down on, on a very strongly like libertarian, ideological, pure free market perspective. Probably the best form of capitalism is capitalism with like some kind of decent social safety net and, and welfare state, maybe like Nordic model, a little bit more capitalist than typical Nordic model countries, but keeping the generous social welfare state. Is, is that a fair assessment of, of where you come down in this book? That's perfect. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to maybe conclude the, th the talk on this um, on this topic. Yeah, exactly. What I show, and this is interspersed in the, in the book on various pages, but I don't ever mention it uh, explicitly or I don't have a chapter dedicated to that issue. Um, but I basically come down politically, normatively on the side of social democratic capitalism. Some people have called it a free market welfare states. And like you say, yeah, th that's basically Denmark. Maybe, maybe not even Sweden, because uh, Sweden is notably less capitalist than Denmark. Uh, both of them are very capitalist, much more so than uh, Bernie Sanders or somebody like uh, him would say. Uh, but Denmark, I think, or maybe Norway are really uh, examples of countries that have robust capitalist institutions, very modest regulation of businesses, a strong uh, market, labor market institutions, strong trade unions, a centralized collective bargaining, sure. Uh, I think that uh, would be something that some libertarians would um, not like too much. But um, otherwise, ex exceptionally free, um, uh, free international trade, exceptionally strong uh, private uh, property rights. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, lastly, uh, quite a large uh, size of government. So lots of taxation, lots of government spending and lots of redistribution. But um, that would be, a, I think, a marriage of the best aspects of capitalism and competition and markets and the price mechanism and free, uh, free international trade. The only thing they're missing are open borders. 
And then on the uh, on the other hand, uh, the I think the the positive aspects of government. And and don't be afraid. I'm aware of all the faults and weaknesses of governments. You mentioned my first book, Rational Choice and Democratic Government. I'll go over the public choice um, theoretical literature over there. I talk about government failures. They happen. They happen in uh, Denmark, definitely. Uh, but even government failures don't all come in the same uh, flavor. Having a government like um, the one in Denmark is quite different than having a government uh, that, that we have here in Slovenia or you have in the United States, or of course people have in Zimbabwe or Afghanistan. So not all government is made the same. In my head, there's a model of what I regard as the strongest threat to my worldview. Threat's a bad word. It's 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 not a threat. Uh, you know, I'm a libertarian. I'm a relatively strong libertarian. I suspect that an ideal social arrangement would be very, very laissez-faire, maybe even market anarchism. But the social system that I see as having like the strongest case against that or that I that I feel like I argue with in my head the most is something like what you just laid out or what I've called in my head uh, Nordic libertarianism. And, and that that's the uh-huh. image I have is basically like extremely free markets in in always very strong private property rights, but with a modest but still relatively generous social safety net that is, you know, market oriented in some ways and somewhat means tested. Something like Denmark is usually the country I have in mind, like an extremized version of Denmark, more free market, but also but keeping their their social safety net. So it's, it was cool to read this book, a, a very thoughtful presentation of even though that wasn't like your main point to defend that vision, you know, that comes through a bit. And you know, I enjoyed reading about that. Thanks, Chris. And that that makes total sense. Maybe just one last recommendation. You could read uh, Lane Canworthy's book. Lane Canworthy is a political scientist based out of, um, I think, California, where you're at. And he has a book called uh, Social Democratic Capitalism. Uh, it was out uh, from Oxford University Press, I think, in 2019. So uh, Lane Canworthy, uh, social democratic capitalism. He also deals with uh, libertarian objections in what I think is a fair, uh, fair way. And he himself is no Marxist or socialist. He also has a book, um, Would Democratic Socialism Be Better? And he says, no, no, it wouldn't. Uh, so maybe you would like that book. I'll check it out for sure. I- I'll let that recommendation stand, but I usually ask for a recommendation. Do you have any other book recommendations that you want to give that would complement this work particularly well? Yeah, I think those two books would be it. So uh, Social Democratic Capitalism and Would Democratic Socialism Be Better uh, by Lane Canworthy. And maybe, but this is now from a more libertarian perspective, um, Van der Vossen and um, Jason Brennan, their book In Defense of Openness, I think is also quite nice, nice from a more philosophical perspective. Great. I'm going to include those and other works we've discussed that have come up so far on the show notes. Are you working on any other upcoming projects that people should know about at the moment? I'm working on a couple of articles uh, about the democratic recession. Uh, so this um, phenomenon of declining democracy scores all over the world in established democracies, in fledgling democracies, even in autocracy, autocracies, measures of civil rights and political rights. This has been declining after the efflorescence, after the boom uh, in the late 20th century. Now, for at least 15 years, uh, and it went uh, hand in hand with the rise of illiberal populism of the likes of uh, Trump and Bolsonaro and people like that. And I'm trying to uh, see whether the rise in economic freedom over that period, the past 15 years, has contributed to that. 
And my preliminary um, findings have been that, no, there is a positive association trying to control in all various ways for everything else that's relevant. Uh, there's been a positive correlation between increases in economic freedom and increases where they happened in democracy. Or in some of my regressions, there, there has been a neutral um, uh, relationship, so, so a null finding, but no a clear negative correlation. So in that sense, I try to answer some of my uh, colleagues' uh, critiques and complaints that the rise of neoliberalism, which is what they call economic freedom, uh, the rise of neoliberalism in the past 15 years has dismantled democracy, which is which has a surface level appearance, a surface level attraction. But uh, I try to show empirically that this is not the case. And uh, this will be coming, this research will be coming out over the, the next uh, year or so, something like that. I look forward to it. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your ongoing projects? Uh, my uh, personal profile is only on Facebook. If they search for my name, I'm not on Twitter, uh, but I do have a ResearchGate profile. Again, just search my name. All of my research uh, is usually available over there. Okay, great. I'll include a link there and to your author page on Amazon as well. My guest once again has been Tibor Rutar, and his book is Capitalism for Realists, Virtues and Vices of the Modern Economy. Tibor, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. It was amazing. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.